everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Laura Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Hi, Anas. I'm glad that you're here. We were able to come and join us today. So Anas is the CEO of Innoviews, and you have 15 years of international experience in architectural and facade engineering. I don't think I've met many people with that background. Um, and what Innoviews works with is providing technology that enables existing building facades to be upgraded with the latest energy saving and smart glass innovations without removal, replacement, or disruption. Exactly. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? What is it that you really do? Well, first, thank you for having me. Really pleasure to be here. And uh, as you said, Innoviews, in, 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 uh, in a few words, developed a technology that dramatically cuts the cost of upgrading building facades and windows, whether for energy or non-energy purposes. And uh, the, core, the core IP or the core technology is that you don't have to replace or throw away the existing systems. Basically, we developed a way where you can continue to use what's existing and then kind of upcycle mm -hmm. and improve and incorporate the latest technologies without having to put in a single screw or remove or drill or alter any existing components. So you don't have to remove the windows? Absolutely not. So when you look at it this way, we're basically utilizing almost 70% fewer materials, less material than a replacement, you know, completely replaced system. So the cost on the material side is dramatically lower. The installation, it's non-invasive. So uh, there's no disruption. You can be, for example, sleeping behind the windows will be working outside, complete no disruption. Um, and because it's a very fast installation process, also the labor cost is much, much lower. And, uh, you know, we avoid disruption costs. We avoid having to take the materials and put it in landfills. So it's a much sus more sustainable solution. Um, so if you loop in all of this, you'll find that now we can address one of the biggest components in a building that leaks energy dramatically in a cost-effective way and have it be considered as an energy conservation measure, such like LED lighting or H, uh, you know, heating, cooling system upgrades, things like that. So we reduce the payback period from, you know, a hundred years sometimes on certain projects to as low as three years. Mm. So that's kind of the core value proposition of what we're doing. Hmm. Interesting. So. Um, we're just closing on a house right now and we just did an inspection. And okay. one of the things we found out was that those, um, those, the seal was, um, has been, had been lost in some of these windows, right? So what would, how would it actually work with your technology? Like if I would, I know you, this is mostly for commercial use, but if yeah. we were to replace or fix the windows in our house, what would your solution actually do? How would it do that? So those windows you're talking about probably have reached the end of life, around 20 years old, probably something like that. 
Actually, and not. It's le- even yeah. le- less. Less. Yeah. So that's ten the years standard. old. Yeah. yeah, that's the standard. It sounds like a warranty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the warranty lasts till ten years. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the standard. But you have that ten to twenty. Yeah. That's where things start to show up. Yeah. And the reason is because, as you said, the perimeter seal uh, lost its integrity mm-hmm. over time, and what happens is basically moisture. Uh, goes into the cavity and then it starts to form and you have those mm. kind of uh, hogging that happens inside the mm. windows. Mm. Uh, typically right now you'll have to replace them. There are no ways to fix them. However, uh, one of the kind of adjacent or secondary benefits to our technology is if you add our system on top as an exterior retrofit, you can extend the lifespan of these in, they call them insulating glass units by up to three times, so hmm. from 20 to 60 years. Okay, wow. Uh, we've done deep analysis on that and simulation, and then recently we did a project where we just retrofitted one floor of a three-story commercial building. They had double-pane windows. We turned them into triple-pane on the first floor with our system. And what they found over the past uh, winter, uh, the second and third floor, maybe one-third of the windows start showing condensation, so they start to fail. And they wanted us to replace them. We told them the first floor didn't have any condensation at all within those existing IGUs. So that kind of confirmed our research and analysis. Basically, you're creating a new weather barrier Mm -hmm. that helps mitigate uh, this kind of failure issue that happens after 20 years because you're reducing the, what they call delta T, the difference Mm -hmm. in temperature across that window. Mm -hmm. So it takes... 3x the delta T, 3x the difference between whatever the temperature set point inside and the temperature outside to show this fogging inside the window. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of uh, one of the examples. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm very curious because I, I think there's a very technical solution in terms of saying we're going to reduce um, heat loss. But yeah. I think one of the things that, that you do seem to emphasize is facade. And um, I'm assuming it's also a good looking solution. Um, and I'm yeah. curious um, how important that is to the customer. Absolutely. So you look now at the mm-hmm. commercial real estate market. It's uh, it's very challenging times. Mm-hmm. Um, building owners are trying to stay competitive. Uh, there is something called like a flight to trend, mm-hmm. a flight to quality trend, mm-hmm. where buildings that are built recently, you know, a couple of years old, will attract the most uh, the most tenants. And then you you're left with the older ones, unfortunately. And sometimes these older ones are really performing well. They've made mm. a lot of upgrades, mm. but still the appearance, the image, and, and the perception of this building in the minds of the public, uh, it's still like it's an older uh, <clears throat> older building, not performing well and all that. So one of the things that could be uh, done with our solution, because you're creating this kind of new facade layer, mm. is you can improve the aesthetics of the building. Mm-hmm. So you're not only getting the benefits of less lower energy consumption, lower carbon emissions, uh, better thermal comfort and acoustic comfort for the occupants, but also you, ha- you get an o- opportunity to change the appearance completely to, of the building. Modernize mm. it, mm. include some of the latest uh, glass technologies, glass colors, um, uh, frit patterns, designs, mm. things Wait, like that. What's a frit pattern? I don't know what that means. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if you saw like uh, when you print on the glass uh-huh. and then you have different shades sometimes, these could be little dots that start mm. very opaque and then they start to uh, get like less dense. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it gives it this kind of uh, translucent look mm-hmm. uh, and helps also with the glare reduction mm. and things like that. Uh, there is a lot of, uh, you know, when it comes to design and color and, and look, there's a lot of options that could be now available. 
without having to rip out your entire facade and uh, hmm. vacate the building completely and uh, hmm. you know replace everything existing. Yeah. So, so each piece of that value proposition is really impactful, right? It's the no exactly. disruption is valuable yeah. on its own. Yeah. The new facade is valuable on its own. And, and oh, by exactly. the way, you get to save energy. Like exactly. So there are, there are many use cases to mm. our technology. One of them is energy, but there's a lot of other drivers. Uh, yeah. Thermal comfort could be sometimes the primary driver. You know, you have tenants threatening to leave, for example. They're feeling too hot in the summer, too cold in the winter. They're not able to really occupy the space productivity of people gets dramatically lower uh, when you're not comfortable. And uh, that's something that, you know, owners really care about. Mm -hmm. So with a very simple solution, you can maintain, retain your tenants, keep your occupancy levels high and uh, be more competitive in the commercial estate market. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I was in um, New York last week and I noticed there were a lot of new buildings that are just like, I think this is, the new kind of aesthetics trend is just like glass. All glass, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. all glass. And I was wondering like, yeah, how environmentally sustainable is that? Like, is there more energy loss when these buildings are just glass? I mean, currently the technology of glass itself or the facades have come a long way in terms of performance. <laughs> uh, so you can get glass that kind of as insulative as walls, normal mm. walls. Mm. The mm. challenge, however, is that that's not the case for a lot of the you know older buildings when you know in the 1980s 90s there was this construction boom cost was the number one driver mm. unfortunately sustainability or kind of you know energy efficiency was not really a main driver for decisions uh, that are made and material selections and and systems uh, so that's why you know there is a huge section of the built environment that is really unsustainable now it's very in energy inefficient Still, when you're looking at, uh, you know, recently built commercial buildings, you have different, uh, still different performance levels because mm -hmm. you have the building code mm -hmm. mandating a certain level of performance, kind of the minimum required. But that could still be not the, the uh, kind of goal that people should aspire to in terms of these kind of uh, huge buildings that are like energy hogs, really. Mm -hmm. um, so it's then from that point up to the owner and how how sustainable they want to they want their buildings to be to to improve the the performance of the building and at the same time you still have technologies being developed today new technologies will be coming available in in a few years so you're always you know the building code and architects and the the kind of uh, the building environments and uh, engineers are pushing the bar up to incorporate these technologies increase the kind of minimum require requirements under the building code and uh, another advantage of our solution is that we really tackle the crux of the problem, mm -hmm. which is that building facades and windows, they're not designed to be upgradable. Hmm. You're designing them, they're installed. After 20 years, throw away the glass. Well, this is not really the case should be in a, in a sustainable hmm. uh, uh, society. So we design a technology that's easily upgradable. It's mm -hmm. like you have a re renewable facade retrofit system or window retrofit system. And what that does is that you know, building owner today can in install the what's the cutting edge technology. And then five years from now, they can upgrade, just swap out part of our product and incorporate the recent latest uh, high performance technology at that time without having to replace the existing facades mm -hmm. or even our entire system. So you have this kind of uh, 
upgradability feature uh, is it's really key to address this in the future. So five years, 10 years from now, uh, you can still uh, integrate and improve the performance of your building. Oh my gosh, I know what's going to happen. There's going to be rentable facades. That's what's <laughs> going to happen. We were, yeah, we were thinking about that, that, hey, you know, like right now, Apple, for example, tell you, you can get the latest phone uh, mm -hmm. every couple of years and you pay mm -hmm. us monthly. Get an upgrade plan, yeah. Yeah, so there is like an upgrade plan where you get the latest technologies mm -hmm. every five years. Mm -hmm. uh, and this way, it's more like a, a uh, kind of a Windows as a service type model. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's no upfront cost, mm. so you know, no big investment required at the beginning, mm. and you get the immediate benefits, reduction in your energy mm. bills dramatically, mm. and you can kind of show your customers or your own your tenants that they're feeling happier, more comfortable, lower energy bills, and uh, uh, more sustainable building. Yeah, mm. you can see how for like with commercial, like especially a retail, um, how if you know the look of a store really matters. Yeah, in, in a way that's different from like. Um, office space where mm -hmm. like that's suddenly a benefit now now we can really tailor the, yeah. the facade in a new way because it's it's a kind of a pay-as-you-go mm -hmm. model right? yeah yeah so mm -hmm. it's interesting um interesting how, how technology can change how we think yeah. about business right exactly yeah yeah no i'm curious how did you stumble uh, on this idea how did it you know all came to be yeah so my background i'm, I'm an architect and facade engineer um and uh since my early days in architecture school, I had this kind of really deep interest in kind of smart facades, dynamic facades, adaptable facade systems. And my first uh, kind of serious attempt was my bachelor's degree project. Mm. And it ended up winning kind of a, a major international architectural graduate award. And uh, because of that, when I graduated, instead of going through the traditional route of kind of going working for an architectural firm, I joined a uh, kind of a national facade fabricator. And uh, from there, I started learning about kind of the technical aspects of how these systems are engineered, how these systems are manufactured, tested, designed, built, all of that. I then moved to uh, Dubai, worked there for about four years for a multinational kind of fully integrated glass and facade manufacturing company. And in the R&D department, kind of really designing these bespoke systems for super high-rise buildings. Mm -hmm. After that, I kind of went back to the architectural field, but been kind of focusing also on facade, but, you know, from the architect's perspective. Mm. Uh, so have developed this kind of uh, unique multidisciplinary mm. uh, experience that's kind of rare to find. Uh, you're either an architect or a facade engineer or a facade systems designer. So that really helped me um, tackle what now is the, you know, the problem uh, or the kind of uh, the thesis for interviews. Now, in between those, the idea that kind of sparked initially was that how can we change the windows to integrate the latest technologies, make them smart without having to replace anything? It was not about energy efficiency, mm -hmm. to be honest, because I did not realize that there was a big problem when it comes to facades. You know, architects mm -hmm. focus mostly on new construction. Mm -hmm. So you're building a new building to the highest standards. Mm -hmm. We didn't really focus much or try to study a lot the built environment, the existing building sector. Mm. and know how big of a problem is the energy efficiency when it comes to windows. So when I started looking for solutions to integrate, you know, smart technologies into existing facades, I stumbled upon, you know, this kind of energy efficiency problem. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, a, an image, a thermal image showing the skyline of New York City. Mm. And it was so striking to see how much heat loss happens through building envelopes. It's mm. really 
you know, a, an image that speaks a thousand words. Yeah. And uh, was, was this in the winter? Or? That was in the winter. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's like really perfect time to show this. Yeah. And, and that got me, you know, into trying to research more of this kind mm -hmm. of building stock and why is mm -hmm. that? And that's when I learned that about 40% of all buildings today still have single pane windows. Mm. These are like mm. one single layer. And half of the remaining 70% have the lower performing early mm. uh, version of double pane windows. So you're mm. talking about 70% of the built, building, uh, building stock is energy inefficient, have obsolete facade systems and window yeah. systems. So it's a huge problem. That's where we start kind of focusing our solution on uh, addressing this problem with yeah. interviews. It's funny with the heat because like in, until you see the data, sometimes you don't realize how big it is. But I think you, you were in Boston. Yeah. Everyone knows if you're in front of a cold win window in winter and even if it's cold, you, you feel it on your skin or you're just like, yeah. oh, you, mm -hmm. I'm sure you felt mm -hmm. that in Norway mm -hmm. too, mm -hmm. right? But it's like seeing it in numbers uh, like yeah. really reveals this is, this is a real big challenge. Right? Exactly. Um, interesting. Yeah. No, exactly. I was thinking in our apartment in Norway, it was um, like one of, we know we didn't have really good w windows and one of them like in the winter would be just like freezing, right? Yeah. Um, and so I'm sure there was a lot of, lot of heat loss. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I guess uh, what makes now the time uh, to, to introduce this technology? Because I, I think we've kind of known that, uh, the, the, that old windows and old stuff is just not very energy efficient. But like, what's what's really catalyzing your growth today? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Uh, believe it or not, when I was like doing the early research in 2016, um, and I was kind of diving into what cities are tr trying to do, what mm. their plans are for the you know, kind of energy efficiency of existing buildings, and uh, I was able to see, for example, now uh, I don't know if you heard of the local law 97, for example, in New York. Mm. It's a major law uh, capping fossil fuel. Uh, emissions from buildings and consumption and um, there's going to be it's going to kick in uh, January 2024 mm. building owners will be facing really steep fines if they don't mm. re, you know upgrade or improve the energy performance of their buildings this was kind of highlighted and talked about in 2016 that that was the plan mm. going forward this is what we're going to be doing and here are the steps to get to that point because you cannot really mandate that immediately so public benchmarking laws and um, uh, energy benchmarking was kind of a, a precursor to that. Uh, so I was able to see where where cities are heading and mm. how this is going to become kind of a perfect time where cities are kind of ma mandating and at the same time utilities, energy utilities are offering uh, significant incentives to encourage building owners to do retrofits. And uh, now you look at kind of the, you know, political environment in general and and uh, what countries are trying to do and the the carbon emission goals and the mm, net zero goals mm -hmm. uh, cities kind of you know uh, focusing or kind of uh, targeting net zero by 2030 2040 2050 so all of this is is creating a perfect environment for energy efficiency technologies uh, you have at the same time you know uh, this is on the public side you have the private sector as well uh, with ESG kind of uh, targets and goals, environmental, social, and governance, you have the investors of these customers or the investors of building owners. They're mandating that they need to be at a certain mm. level of performance. And uh, even you know public companies that occupy these spaces, they have now certain sustainability plans that are kind of, they're required to report on their, the performance of their portfolio of buildings and their entire carbon footprint 
So they're either mandating the, the owners to upgrade or they will be leaving to other more sustainable and energy efficient properties. Hmm. So you have all this kind of market pressure mm-hmm. and uh, incentives offered to really uh, uh, catalyze this kind of energy efficiency movement. And most recently with the Inflation Reduction Act, now there is mm-hmm. like on a federal level, like tax incentives, tax deductions that could be really uh, significant to building owners if they improve and upgrade, whether they're windows or mm-hmm. other building components to improve the energy efficiency. Okay. So we, I believe mm-hmm. it's really the perfect time yeah. for these technologies. So your solution time. could benefit from the IRA. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. people could get their m- m- money back or like exactly. tax. Exactly. So tax refund. deduction, yeah. you get mm-hmm. uh, up to $5 a square mm-hmm. foot of building area if mm-hmm. you improve the performance of your building by over 25% mm-hmm. of your last year performance. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of uh, file that with your tax return uh, next year. Uh, you'll, ha- you'll need sort of like an energy engineer to kind of certify that. Mm-hmm. And then it's it's a very simple kind of process. Mm. Yeah. 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 So that's a tax deduction. Mm. There are if mm. you incorporate some of the advanced technologies or smart glass technologies, you get an incentive tax credit. Mm. Uh, and that's that could be up to 30% of the total cost of integrating or upgrading your your facade or windows. So it's a big deal mm. as well. Yeah. yeah. That's a big driver. So I, I know you're, um, you have uh, IP and patents yeah. uh, that kind of cover this. Did you ever expect yourself to be an inventor? Um not really, yeah. but <laughs> I always like to kind of, uh, you know, uh, develop new mm-hmm. new ways of tackling certain problems. So this kind of creative process, it's an integral part of, of an architect's uh, mm-hmm. experience. Uh, so yeah, every architect I consider a, a, an inventor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what, what was it like kind of going through the, the application process and, and, and really building a portfolio? It was like a black box. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievably tough. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's really uh, difficult, but necessary for any startup founder to you know mm. if they have IP or think they have IP to really mm. understand exactly how things works and how patents work, and uh, because you know the way you describe your technology impacts the protection or the you know how protectable it is. And uh, so I remember at the first couple of years, I kind of studied patent law over time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind of learned how to talk to attorneys, like IP yeah. attorneys, and how to explain mm-hmm. to them what we're trying to do, what the claims needs to be, uh, how to describe the specs and, and how what to include, what not mm-hmm. to include, things, things like that. Understanding the prior art and uh, what's available before, mm-hmm. what you need to research. Uh, it, it, was, it was interesting to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like a you know the the entire language used is like kind of different than English even it feels mm. to you <laughs> so it's like really mm. uh, a a big big kind of unknown and uh, takes time was time consuming to go through it but it was very 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 beneficial I can I can tell you now worth every minute I spent yeah you, and you have international patents as well and you've yeah got, yeah uh, was that PCT process exactly uh, wait, yeah. um, how how did you make the decision of like because you can't patent everything everywhere. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did, what was that calculus for you? It was a strategic decision. Basically, yeah. you need to know where you are today. What are your beachhead markets, mm. and what are the top markets that you think your solution would be most needed? As you said, you cannot patent everywhere. Um, you need to see also where where which countries have 
strong patent protection mm. and enforceability of the patents because otherwise you know you can you can patent you know your invention in a country mm. but it's not going to make make you any benefits um so we had to go through and really uh, put put a plan towards what's important now what's important in the future how cost effective can things be we had to uh, avoid or skip certain countries even though we knew that there there could be interest there but you know uh, it was not a big market and not a, a very close or immediate market for us. Uh, at the same time, there are things where you can continue. So from the day one, you file. Mm -hmm. uh, you can file a provisional patent that gives you almost a year to continue to work on your invention. From that year, you file a PCT. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and from that time, you have some grace period as well before you go into certain countries. I forgot if it's a year mm. more or less. So that's kind of two years to, to, to you know, mm. gives you enough time to really understand where you want to focus first, kind of refine your go-to-market strategy, understand your market segments and verticals, and then file accordingly. So Yeah. And I remember it was always challenging because it's like ten dollars to $20,000 to kind of really get it done correctly because you have to mm. hire the lawyers. Yeah. And if you're doing and it, it can be way more than that. Yes, if minimum. If you're not involved, yeah, it can go up to sixty or hundred k easily. And, mm. and, and then the thing they don't tell you is the maintenance fees that come after that. Yeah, and it's absolutely. like suddenly a, a, yeah. a, you think it's an asset, but in some ways it becomes a liability because of you've course. already invested so much in, in, yeah. in the filing initially. Yeah, um, I was uh, a little bit of a tangent. I was I was mentoring um, someone working on reviewing um, applications for the Rice um, uh, Energy Tech Forum that's coming up, and um, uh, we we're looking at a business. And he goes, oh, I really like this business. They got like 13 patents. And I said, well, they're not really that good because they don't make any money. So <laughs> what's the patent really worth, right? And so I, I guess as you go through this process, how do you kind of communicate to investors like this is a meaningful portfolio or, 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 or do, they, do they just uh, pay attention to the financials? I mean, how do, you, how do you balance that? I mean, look, having patents is absolutely beneficial. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the most important points that uh, investors look at. And, and the reason is because they want to make sure that you have some sort of competitive advantage against mm. your competitors, that they're not going to invest in you today and someone is going to just, you know, copy you tomorrow and, uh, and be in the market before you or have more resources where they can really execute better. Uh, so patents is, you know, one of, one of these kind of barriers to entry that yeah. you can have in your, uh, under, you know, as, a, as, as one of the things you have. The challenge is that as a startup company, you really can't enforce it. You know, yeah. even if yeah. someone goes out and, and try to copy, you, you, you don't have the financial resources to really sue them. Yep. Uh, still, you can use it. Mm -hmm. And once you have stronger investors behind you, you'll be able to really have the deep pockets to at least make whoever is trying to copy you think twice before going to market. Mm. Right. Uh, so having a strategic investor, uh, for yeah. example, in our case, is like a big deal because mm. they're like a global company. And if they want to protect this or they're interested, they're, they can. And yeah. uh, whether financially or just with their you know, army mm. of uh, yep. patent attorneys and, and lawyers. Um, the other thing is that it's hard to put like a dollar amount. I once heard that, you know, every, every patent yeah. is like valued at $1 million in your valuation. Oh, I would, I would just and file patents all the time. <laughs> That's all I took. Yeah. So, 
<clears throat> not sure how true that is. Uh, you know, I just heard it once. Uh, it was interesting uh, to to kind of hear this. But um, the more the more patents you have, uh, the more protection because mm. it's all about patent claims. And the more broader your claims can be, the more protection against different use cases, different modifications, different alterations. You still your patents cover that uh, kind of use case. Uh, at the same time, when you're looking to potentially exit the the, the company and mm -hmm. sell the company, the IP or intellectual property is considered like a really big asset and increase your valuation. Mm -hmm. And um, you can also license these patents. So uh, mm -hmm. you might not make money at the beginning uh, uh, off of those those patents. You might still be in kind of an R&D mode or technology development mode, but you can see that in a couple of years, you'll be, your business model is basically just to license your IP, mm. license your technology, and someone else will be fabricating or executing or, or uh, bringing the technology to market. Yeah. So that's also a very effective and uh, kind of common business model in deep tech, hard tech, yeah. where it's yeah. capital intensive, basically, and a startup cannot do it on their own. And, yeah. and did you find... Um... Because you're kind of like an untrodden ground in terms of developing this these those technology and concepts. Did you find that it was kind of hard to even have prior art to reference because you were like so far ahead? If that makes sense. There, there's always there's prior always art. prior. Okay. There's always okay. prior art, and you're required to to include yeah. everything you find. And mm -hmm. uh, I think it's good process to not just rely on your patent attorney to to search for prior art because you're if, if you're the inventor you absolutely is the best person knowledgeable on your invention so mm. you exactly know you know in, in the process people might send you or when you're doing due diligence with investors and if they're institutional investors they might bring outside counsel to review patents and share with you maybe some uh, kind of uh, prior art mm. and you really need to understand the differences and need to understand what's unique in your technology that's different from others and be able to tell exactly whether that's completely outside the scope. There might mm. be certain keywords, there might be certain aspects that seem similar, but they're completely different. It's very common. Mm -hmm. On the surface, you know, yeah, here is, and I've been in that kind of place many times. Yeah. Oh, you're doing a window retrofit. So here's a window retrofit. Here's a product similar. <laughs> but, and then you dive deeper into what components are mm. included, what not mm. not included what's different about your claims and methods and systems so uh that's important to know as mm. well now i always think these discussions on ip are interesting and and wonder sometimes if our focus on them so early on in a company startup is really warranted right because building a startup is so much more than just a product yeah. that you have of course it's building a whole business model around it and taking it to market and often yeah. that's where most startups fail 100 mm -hmm. percent. um so kind of yeah i mean what's your experience having gone through that I, I guess it's 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 a balance right that you have to have some kind of protections in place yeah but you, then you actually have to make the make the whole business model work have to go to market and um there's probably more protections that you can do later on once you've proved that there this, there is a product market fit. Oh, of course. I mean, mm. for the first year or maybe even two years, we, I didn't file anything. Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea is that as long as you're, there's nothing publicly shared mm. that really describe how you can make this technology 
Mm. I mean, you, you you don't have to to file patents immediately mm -hmm. uh, mm. because the idea, and even sometimes people are afraid you can put, you know, a pitch deck could become public, but you know, the pitch deck, if you have a slide showing, you know, some aspect of your product, a skilled person in the art is not going to be able to remake that technology just mm. out of just one slide. Yeah. So you'll need to have maybe a spec sheet released or um, uh, a more detailed, mm. uh, you know, fabrication drawings and things like that, that could invalidate your your uh, right to file a patent for, for whatever you're working on. But for the first part of the, you know, technology development for a company, they can keep it inside and not share anything publicly or just, you know, very, very basic mm. stuff. And 100% agree that it can be time consuming and and uh, costly mm. in the beginning where, you know, you might not have any investment or mm. you're putting your own money on the line and, and uh, you don't want to do that. And at the same time, you can still file provisional patents. These mm. provisional patents, they cost under a thousand bucks. You can do it. Mm. Uh, there's, or even mm. have an attorney. You can just uh, file basically a paragraph or a couple paragraphs with, you know, nothing other than that mm. and, and, and establish a priority date. Yeah. for you and then that gives you about a year mm. and there is a process where you continue to file provisionals every time things change and things improve and get these kind of different priority dates that mm. you can uh, reference uh, back in the, the application mm. so you moved um to houston from boston what kind of triggered that move and was it you know thinking that the market here is perhaps better for the, your product or uh, well to answer that, you'll have to look at the move behind before okay. that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, I'm originally from Syria. So mm -hmm. I, when I graduated, I moved to Dubai. I worked there for like four years mm -hmm. and then moved to Boston to do my master's degree mm -hmm. there. Um, so when I was in Boston, I was not like, uh, uh, you know, I was still a foreigner. Mm -hmm. um, and when you're, when you're a foreigner, you don't have a lot of the resources that, uh, you know, the, the people in the country here have you know your mm. your garage or your parents home or mm. where you can kind of bootstrap your way out of things and uh, it was very expensive to kickstart the company mm. uh, uh, you know in, in Boston for me because you know I was full-time student I was a full-time uh, mm. you know kind of uh, employee at a firm and I was just barely able to kind of work on this or you know mm. over time or during weekends and I did that for the first year, but then after a year, I realized that, you know, this, the technology seems feasible. It can happen, can work, and it's now time to really devote all my time to it. So I had to quit my job, and we had family here in Houston. Mm. So we moved in with them and cut expenses to almost nothing mm. and afforded to work another year full time on this mm. until it became kind of investable. It was still idea on paper, but mm. I had... I convinced my uh, architectural school to, that I wanted to do my thesis on this. It was too technical for a traditional architectural thesis, mm -hmm. but I told them, I really don't have time to do two. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be either this, I'm going to you know, drop out. So I said, yeah, we're, we'll, we'll give you uh, the green light, do whatever you want to do. And that got me another year to mm -hmm. work on it. And then the uh, thesis research book became the, the first early research book for the, for mm -hmm. the technology. And that's how... You know, when I went through the Central Texas Engine Network, that's all I had, this hmm. kind of uh, early research book. And that's how I was able to raise some money on it. Uh, so you raised your CTAN? 
yeah oh, so okay. yeah. Uh, that was in 2018 yeah uh, that was our first kind of uh mm-hmm. convertible note yeah yeah mm. did you find um so when I went to raise through C10, I felt they really wanted to see cash flow in my business. But I also raised in 2014. So like, how did they approach a hard tech company like yours? Yeah, it's 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 not easy. It's not like in the Bay Area where mm. you you know you're basically if you have a really good potential idea and, and technology and you're early stage where mm. you're not you don't have any revenue, you don't have any cash flow, mm. you can raise really a significant amount of money. But still in Austin, it's uh, it's a really startup friendly mm. uh, fundraising mm. environment compared to other parts of, of Texas. Mm. That's at least my personal experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we weren't able to to get like hundreds of uh, angel members. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously they're looking for more mature companies or at least companies that are uh, in a place where they have some some traction. But there were there were a lot of angel investors that uh, saw the opportunity, saw the vision, and uh, really took a leap of faith and, and basically mm. invested. And what what they did, they said, we're going to put half of what we're planning to put now. And uh, the money I was raising is basically to do third-party lab testing because mm. you know I couldn't afford to do it on my own. Mm-hmm. And we needed money for it. And the promise is that if we succeed in these lab tests, then they'll, they can double down on their, on their investment. And mm-hmm. that's what happened. So we got the first tranche of money mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. went through the test over over the course of three to six months mm-hmm. then finished that successfully we were able to raise uh and double down and then that kind of helped me establish credibility and, and show investors that hey here's traction here's where we are we started with an idea on paper we now have a fabricate fabricatable product we do prototypes we do testing so it was it was kind of milestone based funding mm-hmm. instead of raising a big round all mm-hmm. of a sudden up front so that was kind of my my journey. Yeah, with my, my first seed round was with uh, a Houston Angel Network, and they like they wanted to tranche it as well. And so I think it's very much a, a yeah. Texas thing in, in my yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, actually, I don't know much more about your fundraising journey. Yeah. So uh, we know you raised mm. angel capital, and mm. you said 2018. Yeah. And and, and so where have you, and you and you now have a corporate uh, 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 investor as well. So, yeah, we have now multiple VCs. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But it started, yeah, it started with, a, with just a few. It was it started actually with just one angel mm. investor. Mm-hmm. And yep. it was, uh, I went through uh, the Cleantech Open uh, yep. Accelerator, one yep. of the largest for a clean technology company. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough, I ended up winning the national award uh, mm-hmm. for it. It was the first out of Texas uh, mm-hmm. to win this award. And uh, through that process, they assigned like uh, a team of mentors for mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are local, there are ex-founders, ex-CEOs, or investors. And one of the members on that team um, was uh, uh, an angel investor at the Central Texas Angel Network. It was a former board chair at the CTAN uh, Network. And over the course of six months of the program, we got you know to develop this kind of relationship where um, you know I present to them things and they comment on it, the business model, business plan, uh, everything. You know, it was like a mini mm. MBA program yeah. over six months. I had no idea what, you know, like an executive summary is or, or a business model. So all of that. So at the end of the six months journey, uh, I went through C10 and I applied and everything. It was the end of the year, uh, I think, uh, 2017. So you have that Q4 kind of round. 
So it's near the holidays, everything <laughs> dies off. And, yep. and uh, with, with angel groups, you need a lead investor. Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of to, to, to help lead the deal and do the due diligence. So There's a lot of work. And, you know, holidays and everything, no one wanted to be a lead out mm-hmm. of the members that expressed interest. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, this angel investor who was a mentor also, you know, cannot become a lead because he's like, he knows a lot about company already so he's not going to be able to really do a great job at uh you know due diligence so what happened is that we finished the q4 no lead was identified Mm. and uh it was a very challenging moment in in the journey Mm. that you know i was telling my wife you know by you know by the end of january if we don't secure any funding i'll start looking for jobs because you know you can't you can't Mm. continue uh it's been already a one-year uh journey with no income so what happened, we went through the final competition for a cleantech open. That was uh, around the end of January, mid-January. Mm-hmm. We won the mm-hmm. first place and you get a $50,000 check. Mm. And um, at the time, the this angel investor told the rest of the group, hey, I'm, I'm investing. I'm not going to wait for you guys to find a lead or kind of go through this deal. Mm. I'm, I'm putting in my first check. So he put a 50K. We got another 50K. And that was like the first 100K. It was really like great. So mm. when when the announcement happened, we won the national award and then saw that uh, this angel investor who was really well respected within the, mm. the group put in money. So others followed on yeah. and we got other investors now. And you can say we skipped the entire due diligence process <laughs> to, a, to, to a degree. Uh, we still had to go through, you know, basic stuff, mm. but uh, no main lead, lead investor was identified mm. uh, uh, so we had to set terms, basically, me and the angel investor, and then the other one, the other members liked the terms, and then they kind of came in on the on the convertible note. Yeah. So that was the first first tranche, about two hundred fifty thousand. Uh, after that, we did another um, five hundred thousand the following year, and that's when we started getting some institutional mm-hmm. investors. Uh, we had uh, Saint Gobain, which is one of the mm-hmm. largest, uh, you know, global building technology companies, mm-hmm. uh, building products, materials companies invest. And that was through the Greentown Labs, uh, mm-hmm. uh, because they had sort of like a competition, went through, ended up being selected, uh, worked with them for a few months, did a pilot, our first yeah. pilot with them. And then but they, that was of, a Greentown launch program. Probably. Exactly. It's yeah. now rebranded as go, but yeah, yeah, program. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that was really, really helpful. So that's where we got the kind of uh, second mm. uh, milestone-based convertible note that was mm. d- dedicated to doing pilots mm-hmm. uh, or like kind of the first real installation on an actual building. Mm-hmm. Same thing. We did it, succeeded, and then we raised a seed round mm-hmm. uh, in 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like a 2 million round, oversubscribed. It was 1.5, then we pushed it to 2, and then... Mm. We sold every single share. We raised $2,044,000. We couldn't raise any more because we already extended it a couple Mm. times. Uh, But at that time, we had had a paid paid customers Mm -hmm. for these kind of small paid uh, uh, demonstrations or pilots. Uh, We had traction. We had a bigger team. Mm. We had uh, Mm. installations that had been successful, testing, Mm. some institutional investors behind us. It was much easier to go through it. and now we're we're looking to raise a Series A to mm. kind of mm. you know go f- scale and start you know doing these big deals and big projects and uh, venture out of the kind of demonstration and pilot phase. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so most. Where were most of these investors from? 
Well, it's all over the U.S. Basically, mm-hmm. you have mm-hmm. we have uh, m- several members, a lot of members from the Central Texas Asian Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a VC based here. We mm-hmm. have uh, another angel group in Seattle, E8, okay. yeah. uh, and became E8 Ventures. We have uh, uh, from Boston. We have. Uh, yeah. Uh, Nova, which is mm. Saint Gobain Venture mm. Arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. We have a number of other investors, you know, for all mm. over the U.S. We have also international investors as well, kind of smaller VC funds from Singapore, mm. um, and um, yeah. So, mm. and this was you were raising during COVID, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, how was that experience? Did it make it easier? <laughs> it was not easy, but <laughs> luckily we had <laughs> we had some traction <laughs> to really rely <laughs> on, but <laughs> definitely not easy. Twenty twenty one, however, was much, if you look at the current fundraising environment, is dramatically easier than now. Mm. Yes, yeah. a lot of people were able to still raise. Yeah, uh, in twenty twenty one, now VC funding or mm. VC money kind of dried up, and you have a lot of competition, a lot of mm. startups seeking mm. this small pool of VC money now. Mm. And uh, there's more demand exactly than there's supply. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. So because mm. I, I think we saw a lot of these funds raise capital in 2020. Mm. Um, there was something like 100 fu- firms that were started in early stage VC, and we're now in year three, right? Yeah. So they've kind of spent most of the dry powder, mm. uh, and and it's a weird time for them to re up and try to raise you know their second round. Yeah, essentially. yeah. Mm. And even the ones that mm. still have, there's yeah. a lot still have dry mm. powder. They're they're selective. They, there is dry powder, but people are more cautious. V- yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's mm. a VC market. It's not a startup market. Now. No. So yeah. Yeah. they get to choose their terms. They get to, yeah. to really pick the right startups and uh, the ones that, you know, have a more closer or shorter path to profitability and cash flow positive and all that. Do you, mm. do you think they're like, so we, we talk about like a supply and demand kind of thing. Like, is there more demand in the sense that there are more startups now than there were when you started? Or is it... Um, I no, I don't think so. It's uh, so there was a really interesting report uh, mm-hmm. uh, published by Carta okay. recently, yep. and they were showing that basically Series A funding has slowed down over the past four quarters dramatically, mm. quarter mm. over quarter. Mm. Uh, valuations dropped significantly, <clears throat> amount raised dropped significantly, and I think the last quarter was the kind of. Uh, the smallest amount raised or kind of uh, mm. uh, in terms of these metrics since 2018. Oh, mm. wow. So yeah. it was a big deal when mm. we saw that. And uh, you can see how valuations even trickle down. Right. Yeah. One in every five rounds is a down round. Now. Yeah. Yes. So it's it's you can mm. kind of get an idea how tough mm. the environment is right now. So, so it's really mm. a supply issue. Or the, in, in yeah, and, and there is, yeah. There, I, I believe there is money. It's just, you know, when, when, when you look at the high interest rates, mm-hmm. And kind of the risk-free mm. return is at five percent or more. Mm. That puts a mm. lot of pressure on the venture returns because they need to be significantly higher and be able to really mm. uh, achieve that to to make sense. Yeah. So a lot of uh, LPs or you know dry powders now you know sitting on the sidelines, basically waiting for the right moments or right mm. deals. Mm. Uh, so that's why. But mm. there, there's I, I believe there's a lot of money to be invested in. Especially in climate tech, mm. uh, it's kind of like perfect timing now in terms of uh, the movement around sustainability, uh, government initiatives, incentives offered mm. in general, mm. you know, the public awareness of, of this issue. So Yeah, no, it's, it's kind of mm. ironic that we had so much venture capital come into the space 
before the IRA got passed. And now mm. yeah. you see all this like regulatory change mm. yeah. and um, like demand that's going to be created by the by the new law. You haven't seen a matching increase in venture come in. Yeah. And you got to yeah. imagine like anyone who's looking at the mm. macro is going to has to look at this and say, oh, my gosh, like climate is going to have such good deals come out of this right. because there's just going to be so much money. Yeah. Um, we have to capitalize the space. Yeah. But um but I feel like also over the past decade, though, venture capital's mostly been on software-driven companies, mm-hmm. right? And this yeah. is, I, I think climate tech is very different. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the venture capitalists have really understood, like, how do you actually, yeah, get your returns. You still yeah. show, the industry has to show that it can generate returns. I, I yeah. guess where I'm coming from is, like, there's a there's a rising tide that's going to lift all boats factor here. Yeah. Where this is, like, so much, you know, we're talking, like, trillions of dollars are going to come yeah. into our space. In yeah. a way that wasn't guaranteed. Yeah, no, that's absolutely so speak, true. Right? Yeah. But I'm I'm hoping it would also change a little bit the mentality yeah. within the venture world, exactly. right? Yeah. Because yeah. these are more industrial solutions, capital intensive solutions, yeah. and so they might take they will take longer, and the returns exactly. are not going to be like the returns we get from tech companies. It could be, and that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it, it, you need patient capital mm-hmm. when you're looking at funding climate tech in, in the most uh, broad sense, but there are returns to be made similar to, you know, other kind of verticals. Mm-hmm. It's obviously, you know, with SaaS, you're on a completely different mm-hmm. uh, level. But with all of the, you know, uh, startups in that space, it's really hard to find the, the needle the, in the, the haystack. Unicorn, that, right? exactly, yeah. The unicorn, right? Exactly, There's a mm-hmm. lot of mm-hmm. SaaS companies mm-hmm. and uh, they come and go. And, but with deep tech... You have this deep assets and, mm. and IP that's developed, and uh, there is a lot of companies now that are not capital intensive. You know, there is uh, really interesting business models, yeah. financing models mm-hmm. uh, that are making uh, these kind of technologies get into the market in, a, in an effective way and, and yeah. kind of quickly. Because Innovus is not very capital intensive. No, I mean we from the beginning we adopted a model where every capital intensive part of the business was outsourced. Yeah, mm. so. Mm. You know, when COVID hit, we didn't have like facilities, fabrication equipment and, mm. and labor that we had to deal with. Um, we have a distributed team anyway from the beginning. So we ha- it was much easier to kind of weather the storm. And and even till now, uh, we rely on partners mm. for fabrication, manufacturing, mm. installation mm-hmm. uh, in the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I feel like the, the older I get, the less assets I want to own. And we're not talking about life that. Don't talk about that. <laughs> uh, but like, just as a, as an entrepreneur, it's like yeah, assets are an encumbrance, right? Yeah. You really want to uh, go more fabulite and and find that you know make the extra effort to be to be less capital intensive because it really frees you up to to put the money you know where it's most valuable. Yeah, and and there is there is good timing where you can, for example, uh, having assets might make more sense than not. Mm. Uh, for us, you know, the pilot phase absolutely didn't mm-hmm. make any sense to yeah. have mm-hmm. our own facility or, or our own people uh, doing these fabrications because you don't have you don't have the orders, you don't have the you know mm-hmm. like the sales mm-hmm. pipeline or anything. You're still in development, uh, but I can see now in the next few years it'll be more cost effective uh, to have some of that kind of uh, manufacturing. Uh, process vertically integrated mm. and you can start to vertically integrate parts of that process mm-hmm. in the house because it gives you more uh, control over your mm-hmm. uh, your product the quality the margins the the cost 
a lot of things that uh, will will benefit and will be of interest to investors. Yeah. So yeah, I think there is you know a good time, right time for 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 where you spend and where you start to allocate and and have assets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess uh, as we talk a little bit about the Houston Innovation mm-hmm. Ecosystem, um, what's something you're really proud of here um, that you've seen kind of grown up? It's this movement towards the energy transition. Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. really getting a lot of momentum, and it, it was uh, it was really interesting to see how that movement is starting and how it's be- mm-hmm. shaping up. It's uh, mm-hmm. it, it's amazing, and um, you would think that a lot of other cities could have done it, mm-hmm. but really Houston is really perfectly positioned to lead on that front. Uh, and you hear about all the initiatives, the public and private sector coming together around that. Mm. It's really like a, a good story and, and, and mm. good, you know, movement and momentum is building up around it. So uh, it's, uh, I don't, I don't want to say that Houston was not on the map already within the kind of venture community, but it's kind of emphasizing and strengthening and uh, mm. uh, that position that, you know, you, you see now a lot of uh, VCs coming mm. to Houston. Mm-hmm. Frequently, there's more events. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Corporate VC companies and, and arms are coming here mm-hmm. uh, to to look at startups at a broad scale. I mean, energy specifically, but in in general, under climate tech, there's a lot of verticals that uh, that uh, you know investors are interested in, mm-hmm. and uh, that's really great to see it here in Houston. Have you found that there are any gaps in the ecosystem? Yes, I mean, obviously, everywhere there yeah. is. You know, if you if you look at other other places, whether it's you know Austin or the Bay Area. There are still, if you're not directly related to the energy transition, like mm. deep into it, you'll still feel that uh, other places are more uh, friendly mm. uh, to mm. to startup companies, early stage companies in terms of, you know, risk appetite, mm. um, uh, being open to kind of funding startups and founders that are early stage that is still, I feel, is a gap here. I would love to see the energy transition movement leveraged to expand on that mm. ecosystem mm. for VCs and founders and startups in general, not just uh, mm. ones that are deeply rooted or deeply relevant mm. to the energy transition. And, and so I guess in many ways, like uh, this is an efficiency innovation business model. It's not necessarily energy generation right yes in terms of what you're doing so do you do you feel like um you get pigeonholed outside of the energy transition is um it's it's not immediately relevant Mm. or or you a lot of people don't see how it's immediately relevant but if you think about it you know when you're trying to to move a city off of fossil fuels and you're Mm. relying on the grid to Mm. be able to you know, take all of that potential demand, mm-hmm. a lot of grids are not going to be able to sustain mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at, you need to reduce demand as much as transitioning that to to electricity. Uh, so there's a big movement around electrifying buildings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's been a lot of studies and a lot of research that, you know, a lot of cities, they cannot afford to do that. They just mm-hmm. can't. I mean, mm-hmm. the grid would, would just die, mm-hmm. will, will collapse. So that's where we come in because energy efficiency is the key to enabling building electrification mm-hmm. and, and decarbonization, which is kind of part of the energy transition mm-hmm. uh, uh, movement. Yeah. So 
we're not energy generating, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. but you know we can help with this transition by mm-hmm. basically reducing the the demand from the building sector, which is yeah. kind of the number one, the largest sector in terms of energy yeah. consumption and carbon emissions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I guess the the conclusion here is we shouldn't be so narrow and what exactly. we mean by energy transition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really all these. All these systems are going mm. to evolve and change, yeah. right? Yes, yeah. as the transition happens. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and for Texas, it's particularly relevant, right? Because yeah. with the energy, the electricity grid issues yeah. that we've had oh yeah. the gosh. past couple of years. The so, that, yeah, yeah. Mm. absolutely. Mm. Do you guys get that? Do you get this email every day from Ericot saying, "Please don't keep your thermostat conserve"? Down? Yeah. yeah. Are you getting exactly. that? Yeah. yeah, that's good though, because we need to be better mm-hmm. at conserving. Yeah. 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 So, uh, we and part definitely... of that is having more energy efficient building envelopes yep. because yeah. that's keeping the heat in keeping the cool the cool in keeping the heat out so this is how you regulate uh, yeah. the performance of of the building and the temperature yeah. and all that yeah it's a great note to uh, close on exactly <laughs> yes. um so what do you think um our audience could support you on any um any any goals that you have that you know they could help you with we're, we're trying to spread the message that uh, energy efficiency is is really important, mm. especially for buildings. Uh, when you look at, you know, the movement around net zero, decarbonization, and uh, the climate goals, people, a lot of people don't know that buildings are like a really mm. core part mm. of the problem, and mm-hmm. addressing it is is a is a is a big deal, especially when it comes to building facades and windows. We talk to a lot of uh, building owners and they don't even think about the facades or windows because in their mind, they know that it's like the only solution is to replace them and it's like very costly, mm-hmm. very disruptive. So there's a lot of an educational element to mm-hmm. what we're doing to tell them, no, look at this, look at the impact. We do kind of a cost benefit mm-hmm. analysis at the beginning, do an energy model, show them before, show mm-hmm. them after and show them the financials, what the impact could be, the ROI, the payback. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's important with, you know, spreading the message, spreading mm-hmm. awareness is a, is a key component that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, would be, would be helpful to us. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also raising, raising funding mm-hmm. and, uh, a lot of these startups cannot succeed or cannot take these inventions or these technologies, these solutions to market unless they have these backers at the beginning to be able to, to take it to market. So if, uh, any investors are interested, let us know. Good. And where can they find you? My email is uh, Anas, A-N-A-S, at interviews, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter mm-hmm. uh, as well. Is it still Very called Twitter? <laughs> X. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Good. Okay. All awesome. Right. Thank, Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Mm. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. You can learn more about this company on DW Insights, a marketplace for energy technologies. On the platform, you can access early new episodes and content, and you can also discover exciting technologies. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.